Okay, well, good morning. So over the past few weeks, we've heard some great stories about Abraham and Moses and David and all of the just unbelievable things that happened when God showed up for them. But what about those times in our lives when God just doesn't show up? For me, that started in the summer of 2015, and it was the beginning of a season where no matter where I looked, it looked like God wasn't there. And it started the night that my husband walked out of our home. Months of unspoken and unmet expectations had led to a lot of disillusionment on his part, and he decided that um, for him, the best choice was to no longer live in our home. And just like that, literally in five minutes' time, my world turned completely dark. I, had, I was sitting in a place of pain that I had never experienced before, both physical, emotional, and even spiritual. And everywhere I looked, I was surrounded by loneliness and fear and insecurity. I had no idea what was going to happen to me, what was going to happen to our family. And off and on for three years, these feelings would consume me. And it seemed like the harder that I prayed for our marriage to be restored, the bigger the chasm between us grew. I had never felt so hopeless in my life. And as I looked around at what was happening and none of it was good, things were falling apart. It looked like every, th every time I tried to do something good, I was met with more bad. And I couldn't help but wonder, God, where are you in all of this? I'm guessing that some of you may too have also experienced a time when God felt absent. Maybe you're in one of those seasons right now. Maybe like me, you're watching a relationship that is so important to you just fall apart and no matter what you do, nothing changes. Maybe you're overwhelmed with grief and fighting to understand why someone that you love was taken too soon. Maybe you're facing a medical diagnosis that has you wondering what happens next. Maybe you've lost a job or work with difficult people or have difficult children. Or maybe it's not something you personally, but maybe you turn on the TV and you see news like this young girl from Iowa who went missing and then showed up dead and you wonder, God, where are you? Let me start by saying this. It's okay to wonder where God is. We all have those moments where it seems like everything is working against us, and no matter what's happening around us, we see no way out or no way to help. And it's in those moments that no matter how hard we try that it seems really hard for us to imagine that God's even present. So today we're in our fourth and final week of the series, Relatable, Seeing Yourself in God's Story. And today we're going to spend some time in the book of Esther. I love what we can learn about what's written in the book of Esther, but even more, I love what we can learn from what's not written. In the original version of the book of Esther, no name, title, or pronoun for God appears, not even once. So this omission of God's name actually led some people to question whether or not the book of Esther should be included in scripture. And yet, when we dive deeper into this book, we can see God's presence clearly throughout the entire story. We'll see that without a doubt, God is working quietly behind the scenes, even in the midst of the scene, of the scene where it feels like everyone else is holding all of the power and calling all the shots. And as we dive deeper into that today, not only are we going to uncover the truth that God is ever-present, but we'll also see that when we pay close attention to the character of Esther, we can learn how to respond to those situations when it feels like God's not there. Because it's at those very moments when God feels the furthest away 
It's when he's calling us to live brave. And Esther teaches us what it's like to live brave even when God feels absent. So today we're going to focus on a section from chapter 4 in the book of Esther, but first I want to give you some of the background of the first three chapters so that you can set the, so we can set the stage for where we're going to land. So the story of Esther begins around 460 BC, and King Xerxes reigns over the Persian Empire in what's the modern-day Iraq. Esther was a young Jewish woman who lived in the kingdom of Persia, the dominant kingdom after Babylon's fall. And there were many, many Jews living in Persia at the time, and they chose to stay there rather than journeying back to their homeland. And because they were living here in Persia, they were living as minorities. So they were, um, so just like today, some of the struggles that minorities in our country have, they were experiencing, the Jewish people in Persia at the time, including Esther, were experiencing some of those things. So in the first chapter of Esther, King Xerxes throws this series of extravagant parties because he, he's the king, right? And he just wants to brag about how powerful he is to everyone in the land. And so as a part of this party, Xerxes wants to show off his wife, the queen. And so he invites the queen, her name's Vasti, and she, he invites her in and says, hey, come on over here, I want to show you off to all of these officials, all of these people who are here. And she tells him no. So you can imagine how well that went over with the king, right? So he's angry that she doesn't show up, and he consults with his officials and says, what should I do? And his officials say, well, you know what? If you okay this behavior, that your wife didn't show up when you called, we're going to have uproar in the country because every woman's going to feel like they can say no to her husband. So here's what you should do. You should demote her from queen. So that's what he does. So he removes Queen Vasti from her position, and he begins his search for a new queen. So at this point, King Xerxes hosts what I can only think of as the ancient version of The Bachelor, <laughs> right? So he sends out a decree and says, all right, I need all the single ladies, and I really want to break into some Beyonce right now, but, I'm not <laughs> but he says, okay, single ladies, I want you all to come to me because I am going to pick my new queen. And of those women in the, in the running for queen happened to be Esther. And Esther, again, she was young. She was Jewish. This is a really important thing to remember, that she was Jewish. Yet, King Xerxes found favor with her. And so, in bachelor tradition, he hands her the rose and says, Esther, will you be my queen? And so Esther, a young Jewish girl, a minority in this country, becomes the new queen. Now, before she took her place in the palace, she had lived with her cousin Mordecai, who was also a Jew. So Esther was an orphan, and so her cousin had raised her, so she was living um, with him. And at about the same time that Esther became queen, Mordecai became a government official. And so because of his position in the palace, he was at the right place at the right time to hear a couple of the guards talking about a plan to assassinate the king. So because Mordecai took his position seriously, he gave word to the king. And the, um, and the plan to assassinate the king was, um, was, was averted. So in addition to, now we're going to come back. This seems like a lot. It seems like kind of a lifetime movie, doesn't it? Like, really? So all of this is really happening at this time in the Bible. But so at the same time, Esther's queen, 
Mordecai is part of, is a government official. Haman is the king's second in command. Now, Haman was a descendant of a king who was an enemy of the Jews. And so that hatred of Jewish people had been passed down through generation. So you just think, so here's this man, second in command to the king, who just because his ancestors told him he should, he hated the Jews. But he also thought he was pretty important, and so he asked everyone in the community to bow to him whenever he walked by. But Mordecai refused, and he said, no way, I'm not bowing to you because you are not worthy of that kind of treatment from me. So that really made Haman mad. And so he decided, you know what, I'm not just gonna punish Mordecai for that, I am going to punish all of the Jews. So he went to King Xerxes, and kind of tricked the king by saying, you know what, these Jewish people that are living in our community, they are nothing but trouble. We need to do something about that. So um, at the pleading of his second in command, the king signed a proclamation that said that all of the Jews would be killed. And that's kind of where we are now. Mordecai knows this plan that the Jews are gonna be annihilated. He knows that Esther, his cousin, a young Jewish girl, is in the palace and has favor with the king. So he goes to Esther and says, you gotta do something. So that's where we're gonna pick up now. If you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in Esther chapter four. You can follow along on the Ignite app or on the screens. So we're gonna start here in chapter four, beginning with verse 11. So remember, Mordecai has just said, Esther, you've got to do something. If you don't do something, all of the Jews will be killed. And so Esther sends these words back to Mordecai. She says, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So a couple important things happening here. First, anyone who comes to the king without the king asking him to, it's a law that they will be killed. And Esther knows this. So she knows this is probably not a good idea. Mordecai is saying, go to the king, plead for our people. And she's thinking, are you kidding me? This is the worst idea I have ever heard. And I imagine at this point, she's thinking, God, where are you? Why would you put me in this spot? Because again, what we've experienced so far appears more like a soap opera than it does a God story, huh? And remember, again, his name hasn't been mentioned once in any of this. So again, I'm thinking, Esther's probably wondering, how did she even end up here? She's already endured so much heartbreak in her life. She's living as an orphan in a strange land. She was taken from her uncle, the only person she was close to, and now she was a queen and being asked to do what looks like the impossible. In this situation, I can only think that you'd be looking for that emergency exit or pinching yourself thinking, okay, this has gotta be, this is too crazy to be real. When is this gonna be over? So let's pick up in verse, verses 12 through 14. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It's at this point that Esther finds herself with a choice to make. She's in a position where I'm betting that she's feeling alone and fearful and perhaps a little bit hopeless. And she's probably thinking, God, where are you? Now let's jump to verses 15 and 16. Then Esther sends this reply to Mordecai, go, gather all of the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. It's quite a transition from verse 11 to verse 16, isn't it? So just five verses earlier, Esther was ready to run away and hide, unsure that she was the one that could save the Jewish people, and maybe even a little bit unsure as to whether or not God was really working. And now, five verses later, she is ready to march in and plead to the king for her people. Esther chose to live brave, even when God was felt far away. From her actions and the actions of those around her, there are three things that happened, and with them, three keys to living brave that we can learn to apply to those circumstances when we feel like God is silent or even absent. The first one is this. Remember God's promises. Mordecai reminded Esther that God is in control. Look back to verse 14 when he says, deliverance for the Jews will arise. God had made a promise to save his people, and Mordecai believed that, no matter what, that God was going to deliver on that promise. Because God never breaks the promises that he makes to us. His plan isn't hindered by the world. Though fear may creep in at times, we have to remember that no one, not a friend, not a spouse, not a boss, not a king, not a president, not a terrorist can destroy God's plan for his people. And Paul reminds us of this in Romans 8:28 when he says, "And we know that God causes all things to work together for good." to those who love God, to those who are called according to his people. You guys, God's in control of our history. He's never frustrated by any turn of events or any choice that any human makes. We can't out-decide, out-maneuver, or out-plan God. It doesn't matter what we do. Although I can imagine that there's probably times that he looks down and says, that's not quite what I had in mind, but I can still work with it. When we trust God, we can let go of the fear of what people may do to us, and instead we can be confident in God's control. So for us, that means the first thing we need to do in order to live brave is to make sure that we are soaked in and reminded of God's promises. And if you're not feeling strong enough to do it yourself, surround yourself for those, with those people who will remind you. Remember, for Esther, it was Mordecai who reminded her that God made a promise and that he could keep it. For me, it also took a friend. She told me early on to make God's word the last thing I read at night and the first thing I read each morning, even if it was only a couple of verses. At her encouragement, I laid a Bible 
on the pillow next to me on, in bed. So that was the first thing I saw in the morning and the last thing I saw at night. And that small action, even just a verse or two, created a firm foundation of planting God's promises in my heart and it helped me to remember. So the second key to living brave is to reframe your perspective. Verse 14 in Esther chapter four is a game changer for Esther. When Mordecai says, and who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This is Esther's invitation to live brave. This is her moment to shift her focus from why me to why not me. I don't know about you, but I can find it really easy to fall into that why me mentality. And in fact, I did for a while, and I tried to hide, and I tried not to address what was going on in my life. And when life throws us tough stuff, it's really, really easy to do that. We blame others, we don't take responsibility, we lose trust, we develop fear, we become self-reliant, and we take control so that we don't lose control. And the irony of that is, we lose control anyway. There's no doubt that Esther was feeling at least a little bit of that when Mordecai first asked her to approach the king, but she quickly realized that she needed to look at things differently. And we do too. Over the past three years of my life, this verse, Esther 4.14, has found its way in, like showing up at the most random times, whether it's in my Facebook feed, whether it's in a devotional I'm reading. In fact, about a year and a half ago, a necklace showed up at my house with that verse on it. I still, to this day, have no idea who it's from. And like Esther, I used that as my invitation to shift my perspective from why me to why not me. But that shift requires moving from looking inward and focusing on ourself and our situation to looking upward. We need a vertical perspective. And one of the best ways to do that is through prayer. And Esther shows us that. Look back to verses 15 and 16. Esther calls for a fast and invites others to join her. She says, go, gather together all of the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. Even though prayer isn't specifically mentioned here, fasting came with prayer in the Old Testament. So we can make the assumption that not only were Esther and her attendants and her fellow Jewish people fasting, but they were also praying. She knew that in order to reframe her perspective, that they needed to start looking vertically. Prayer lets us participate with God in his works. When Esther and those around her prayed, it wasn't to impress God or even to inform him of what was going on because he already knew. For Esther, fasting and prayer were ways to come into fellowship with God. Prayer grows us and reminds us that we can't do things on our own and God wants us to depend on him. And not only did Esther fast and pray, but she did it in community. Notice that she asked Mordecai to go back to all of the Jews, that she said, my attendants will join you. We will do this together. Living brave is not done in isolation. Even though we live in a society that thinks bravery is doing it on our own and standing on our own two feet, it's not. 
it's easy when we're going through those tough times to want to retreat or to want to say, I've got this, I'm the brave one, but that won't do anything to change our perspective. When we're walking through those hopeless seasons, we need to pray and we need to pray with others. Esther's plea to Mordecai and her attendants to join her in fasting a prayer reminds us that we need to be available and to reach out to others. An important function of a community of believers is mutual support in difficult times. So when you're experiencing struggles, don't be afraid to turn to fellow believers for support by sharing your trials with them and gaining strength from that bond that unites you. Ask them to pray for you, and when others need support, give it willingly. So when it comes to living brave, we need to remember God's promises, reframe our perspective, and then we can apply the third key, and that is receiving God's rewards. When we turn our attention more to God and less toward our situation, he rewards us with exactly what we need. But it's not an if-then kind of reward. It's not if you do this, then you're going to receive this reward. It's a just-because reward. Because God loves us so much, he will give us exactly what we need at exactly the time that we need it. When we're in those seasons, those hard seasons that we need to endure, what we need might be simply an overwhelming sense of peace. It might be wisdom and discernment. For Esther, it was courage. Remember her parting words to Mordecai? She said, if I perish, I perish. Those are the words of someone who was confident she was not standing alone. The words of a woman who was standing strong in the strength of God. When our faith is strong, when we've shifted that perspective vertically, God will make the decision to give us whatever it is that we need at exactly that right time whether it's courage, whether it's peace, whether it's wisdom. So what do we do here? We trust in the Lord's strategy. He chooses to partner with us. He wants us to be involved in the process of carrying out his works. It'll unfold differently for each of us because we are all different. And he could totally do it himself, but he really, really wants us to be along with him on the journey. So let's finish out the story of Esther, because I'm sure by now you're wondering, okay, so what happens? And then we'll take a look at one more bonus lesson about living brave. So Esther has just told Mordecai, all right, I'm going to do it. After we pray, after we fast, I'm going to go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. So she asks King Xerxes and Haman, his second-in-command, to be her guests at a banquet. And during the feast, the king asks Esther what she really wants, and he says, I will give you anything. And she says, you know what? I want you to come back for another banquet tomorrow. So that night, the king was sleeping, and he woke up and couldn't get back to sleep. And so he's like, okay, I need to do something to get me back to sleep. What can I do? So he starts flipping through his book of records. And he happens to read an account of a man named Mordecai who stopped an assassination attempt against him. And the king thinks, wait a minute. Was Mordecai rewarded for what he's done for me? And so the next day, 
the king asks Haman, he says, hey, what would you do for someone who has performed heroic acts and has not yet been rewarded? Well, Haman thinks it's him. Because remember, he's that guy that thinks he deserves all of this credit. And so he maps out this lavish plan and he says, you know what? Here is what you should do to reward this hero. And King Xerxes says, that's a great idea. I want you to do every single one of those things for Mordecai. Really? <laughs> so, during the second banquet then, so Mordecai is honored. Haman and Xerxes come to Esther's second banquet. And the king again asks Esther what she wants. And Esther tells him, there's a plot to kill all of my people, and I would like you to do something to stop it. And the king says, who would do such a thing? And Esther's in position that she can say, it's your second in command, your, your majesty, Haman. And so at that point, immediately, the king sentences Haman to die on the same impaling pole that, coincidentally, Haman had set up for Mordecai. So sweet justice, right? There it is. So Mordecai was then appointed to Haman's position, and the Jews were granted protection. So God's promise that he would save his people has come full circle. The bonus lesson for us in this we can rest in God's sovereignty. The circumstances surrounding Esther's story were not the result of chance, but of God's grand design. God is sovereign over every area of our life. He has complete power and authority to carry out his will. And even when things looked, happened that looked like they were going to derail his plan, we can see God at work. Vasti was demoted as queen. God elevated Esther and put her in a place where she could influence the king. Mordecai overheard a plot to assassinate the king, and he reported it. The king read that exact entry the night that he couldn't sleep. There were probably lots and lots of things in that record that he could have read, but he happened to read that one at just that time. And that turn of events led to Haman's death and the protection of the Jewish people. Even when it looked like their world was in the hands of those evil people, of everyone that carried the power, God was still in control and worked all of those things out to protect those people who are his. That's sovereignty. With God in charge, we can live brave. He can guide us through every circumstance we face in our lives. No matter how hopeless our condition or how much we would like to give up, we can rest in knowing that God is in control of our world. And there's a second part of this bonus lesson. Not only should we rest in God's sovereignty, we can rest in his timing. We may not know what God's doing at any particular moment, and it may feel like he's not doing anything. Sure, this happened, Esther's story happened over the course of a few chapters, but it was really years that it took from the moment that she became queen till she was able to deliver her people into protection. So even when he's not doing anything, or when it feels like he's not doing anything, we need to rest in the fact that he's always working. Honestly, I felt that way again last week when I stood in a courtroom in front of a judge as she signed the papers to finalize my divorce. And in that moment, I had to make the conscious decision to live brave. 
to remember that God is still in control and his plans are greater than any plan or any choice that any one of us can make. There will come a time when we realize why we've gone through certain experiences, why we've met certain people, why we've lived in certain places, shopped in certain stores, done certain things. There will come a time when everything comes together and we look back and we see that we too were at the right place at the right time, just as Esther was. It's never a matter of God not being present because he always is. And we're, we're reminded of this again in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8. The Lord himself goes before you, and he will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. What a great promise for living brave, isn't it? God's before us. God is with us and he will never leave us. I love this. He's before us, he's with us, but he's not sitting in the circumstance with us. He's standing next to us, he's standing ahead of us, nudging us out of it, because that's where he is, who he is and where he is. So today, if you're sitting in that place where it feels like God's not present, tell him. He's not going to be surprised. He's not going to be offended. In fact, he's going to use that time to remind you of what he's promised and give you exactly what you need, whether it's peace, whether it's wisdom, whether it's courage. And with those rewards that God gives you, you can rest in that promise that he is working your life out for good for such a time as this. We pray with me. Father God, we are just, we thank you for your sovereignty. Even though it's one of those things that we with our human minds cannot understand, we are so grateful that every step of our lives, everything that we do, we're joined by you. Father God, for those of us that may be going through seasons when it feels like you are absent, I just pray that you will reveal yourself, that you will help us to focus our perspective vertically so that we can see you, that you will surround us with the people that we need to remind us of your promises, and that together we can step into a life of being brave as we work out the plans that you have ordained exactly for us. Again, Father God, we are just thankful that you don't leave us. Thankful that wherever we are on the journey, that you're next to us, that you're ahead of us. Again, as, as we go through our day, just help us to remember that. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.